Glad to be here today, together with you today. My name is John. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. And uh, excited to be able to get into uh, this passage from the book of Philippians here today. Uh, at the beginning of this month, uh, we spent an entire Sunday talking about the subject of life, human dignity, and the way of Jesus. And this was in response to the leaked Supreme Court draft um, regarding Roe versus Wade. And if you haven't had the chance to listen to that message, I encourage you to go back and find that. You can find it on our website or on our YouTube channel. Um, but we felt like it was important to say something a little bit more today since the final decision was handed down this past Friday. Obviously, I'm not going to say, uh, I'm not going to take as much time as I did last time, uh, but just a, a few moments here at the beginning, I want to just uh, ponder the question with you for just a minute, how do we respond? How do we respond now that the legal aspect of abortion has been returned to the states? And very simply, I just want to encourage us as a church family that we respond by rolling up our sleeves and putting our money where our mouth is. That's what we do, is we roll up our sleeves and we put our money where our mouth is. The very hard work of being holistically for life and human dignity is not over with the Supreme Court decision that was handed down this past Friday. In fact, the hard work of being holistically pro-life is just beginning in a new, different way that many of us who are younger than the Supreme Court decision is, we don't know life without Roe, um, but we're entering a new sort of era of what life looks like, uh, this side of that court decision, and so we get to uh, discern together what it looks like to be holistically pro-life, and that work is just beginning. Uh, Timothy Dalrymple is a writer for Christianity Today, and he said this. He said, the end of Roe will honor the sanctity of human life and deliver children safely into the world. It will also bring real hardships for many mothers. The best way we can celebrate the children who will be born of Roe's demise is to love the mothers who raised them. And so that's, a, that's what we do. We roll up our sleeves, and we put our money where our mouth is. All that stuff that we say about being a church that is... Uh, filled with people whose lives are characterized by love and forgiveness and grace and compassion and patience and understanding. All the stuff we say about being a church that wants to care deeply for those who are in uh, positions of vulnerability, uh, we put our money where our mouth is. And we prove that we actually believe that by getting into the trenches and loving women well, even if they choose to still have an abortion. We prove it by upholding the dignity and honor of human beings made in God's image, not only in the womb, but also at every stage of life. We prove it by doing everything in our power to create an environment, to create a culture here in this place where God has stationed us, where abortion is not only banned, but unimaginable. Our vision as a church, as we have said, our vision is not just to ban abortion, but to make it unnecessary. We want to be so deeply embedded into the life of our community and so deeply embedded into the spheres of influence where uh, we are that no woman who comes in contact with Elmwood would ever believe that abortion is the best option or that abortion is the only option. It would be unimaginable for a woman to even consider abortion. That's the kind of impact that we want to have in our community. And so we do celebrate. We do celebrate that Roe was overturned and we do move forward uh, wanting to see more public policy that upholds the dignity and the value of human life. And we recognize that those policy things 
are not a replacement for the hard work of being in the trenches and loving women and those who are in vulnerable positions. And so this is, uh, now is the time for us, friends. Uh, I don't know what this looks like for us as a church in the days to come, uh, but now is the time for us to roll up our sleeves uh, and do the hard work of being holistically pro-life. It's a time for us to put our money where our mouth is and to practice what we preach, okay? Let's turn to the book of Philippians now. As we come to this passage, would you join me in a word of prayer? Oh God, we come to you this morning in a position of humility. Lord, we come and we desire to submit ourselves to the goodness and the truth that is found in your word. We believe that what your word teaches us and how it instructs us is for our good, it's for our flourishing, it's for our joy. And so Lord, we desire that. We desire to be people whose lives are shaped into the image of Christ. Lord, as we look at this passage today, we pray that you would give us eyes that can see what is here. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate this passage for us, that you would help us understand it rightly. And not only that you would help us understand it intellectually, but you would cause our hearts to be captivated by the person of Jesus. Cause us to leave your changed people because we have seen him clearly. We ask this in his name and all God's people said. Amen. We all have, I'm not in Kansas anymore types of experiences. We all have moments where we realize that things are different around here. Um, sometimes that's in a very good way, and sometimes that is in a very bad way, because we like the way that things are done and we don't like change. Sometimes uh, change is welcome. But we all have these moments where we have this I'm not in Kansas anymore sort of experience. And that may be uh, related to a job transition. It may be that you are at a different on a different team at your workplace. It may be that you have a new manager or that your company was acquired by a different company and you realize, oh, things are done differently around here now. It may be uh, on a sports team, if you get a different coach who coaches very differently than the coach that you had previously and you realize, oh, uh, we're not in Kansas anymore. It may be if you are in school, uh, you are taking a series of classes on the same subject and you get a different professor or a different teacher for some of those classes, and you realize, oh, this, this guy teaches so much different than this guy, or this girl is so different in the way that she approaches a subject than this other person is, and you realize, oh, okay, things are different around here. It may be related to uh, dating. When you date someone and you finally meet their family, you have these moments of, oh, I'm not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> And you, you quickly realize uh, how different their family of origin is than yours. How different uh, they handle conflict. How different they are as far as personality and communication and all those things. And uh, you just have the experience of very clearly seeing that, oh, things are different around here. Maybe also, if you travel overseas, if you've experienced different cultures, 
you have this experience of, I'm not in Kansas anymore. And we've all got these experiences, these moments where we experience, oh, things are different here. And this is in part, this, this feeling is not something that is unfamiliar to us as followers of Jesus. In fact, this is a, a fundamental reality of being a follower of Jesus is that we have, as the Bible says, we have been taken out of one kingdom and put into a different one. Those of us who have been made alive in the person of Jesus, we have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, of Christ. And that comes with naturally all kinds of things we experience and we see where we realize, oh, this is not the way that I'm used to it. Things are different here. And in fact, what it means to be apprenticed to Jesus, what it means to live a life of following Jesus, is to be in a process of continually being surprised by the realities of life in God's kingdom. And of course, those realities are so wonderful and so beautiful and so life-giving. But it's the the entirety of our lives becomes the process of learning and living in light of the realities of life in God's kingdom. And as we look at this passage here this morning, I wanted to suggest that we can see two of these surprising realities of life in God's kingdom. One of them is related to, uh, more related to material possessions, and one of these realities is more related to finances. So we're going to look at these both here today. So the first surprising reality that we see of life in God's kingdom is this. We can be content in any situation. We can be content in any situation. Now, we talked about contentment last week, and I hope you know that we're not just going to re-say everything that we said last week, but there's so much to this subject, and this is such an important subject, especially for us in a sort of modern American context. Because of our cultural environment, it's so important that we spend more than one Sunday talking about the subject of contentment, so we're going to talk a little bit about that here again today. Contentment is really a heart-level satisfaction. That's what contentment is. It's a heart-level kind of restfulness, and what Paul has been telling us in this passage is that that restfulness, that heart-level satisfaction and contentment is available to every follower of Jesus in every kind of situation. And then he goes on to describe the entire gamut of human experience. And he talks about, I can be in want, I can be in excess, I can be hungry, I can be full, I can be in any and every kind of situation, and no matter what I'm facing, contentment is always something that I can find. In other words, there is no circumstance in which contentment cannot be had. Heart level, satisfaction can be found in any and every kind of situation. And so in order to press into that a little bit more, uh, the surprising reality is that we can be content with little. We can be content with having very little. There's a verse I, keep, I, I read a, a couple months back, and I keep coming back to it. It's from 1 Timothy, and it's in chapter 6. And verses 7 and 8 say this, we, were brought into, we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. If we have food and clothing, if we have absolute bare essentials only, we can be satisfied with that. And I keep coming back to this verse thinking, okay, hold on. That can't be what he really means. (laughs) Okay, there's got to be some like secret clue in the Greek that like when he means satisfied, he means really satisfied in most things, but you have to have all these other things. You know, like there's, there's no like secret hidden thing in the Greek to this, okay? What he's saying is we can be content and satisfied in a situation where all we have is bare necessities. And I keep thinking about this because what Paul is saying in these verses is 
the complete opposite of the message that we continually hear over and over and over again in our cultural environment. And that is, in order to be happy, in order to be satisfied, in order to have a life of contentment or a life, a truly meaningful life, there are all these things that you need to have. There are all these experiences that you need to have. There's all these experiences you need to provide your children if they're going to grow up and be well-rounded human beings who can contribute uh, to society. And there's all these things that, that, that our cultural environment presses in upon us saying you must have these things in order to be a happy, content person. And in fact, discontentment is actually one of the driving forces of the free market economy that we find ourselves in. Okay? This, is just like, this is just like the cynical side of me coming out. Okay? But every single advertisement you see is designed to make you feel discontent with the life you have discontent enough that you will purchase the product or service that this person or this company is offering you. That's at the heart of what the free market economy we're, we're in. That's, that's what it does. It creates discontentment. Now, please understand that I'm, I'm not saying that there's like a bunch of, you know, executives sitting in a room, sitting there like, well, we're going to hurt people, <laughs> okay? I'm not saying that there's any sort of like weird stuff like that happening, and I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't uh, partake of the goods and services that are available in the culture around us. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that when we have clear teaching from Scripture that says we can be content with little, we can be content if we have absolute bare necessities, we just have to recognize that we live in an environment where that is not the message that we, we continually hear. We live in an environment where the deck is stacked against us in that way. And so we just have to recognize that. But the good news that Paul tells us here is that we can have contentment with very little. He also goes uh, on to say that we can be content with much. He talks about this, we can be content in little and with much. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, no, duh, of course we can be content with much. Seems like sort of a waste of your words to talk about that. <laughs> but let me, let me just poke into this for a minute here, Okay. It's difficult to be content with having little. And I'm going to suggest to you today that it's equally as hard to be content with much. Now, what, here's what I mean by that. Anybody can enjoy having lots of nice stuff. Okay, if you have, you know, you take a person, you give them a nice car and a nice house and they've got, you know, extra money in the bank and they can have these these luxuries or conveniences, or they can go on these trips, or they can provide these opportunities to their kids, or you know, all the different things. A person who's well off, that person can certainly enjoy having lots of nice stuff. But enjoyment is not the same thing as contentment. You can enjoy lots of good material possessions and still not be content with the material possessions you have. And in fact, sometimes the enjoyment that we experience with having much and living in a country where we have so much abundance around us, the enjoyment of those material possessions can sometimes mask the inner discontentment we feel with having those possessions. And so what I think we have to recognize is that how we live with little is exactly how we will live with much. How we live with little is exactly how we will live with much. So imagine with me a person who is maybe not uh, subsistence level, they're not you know, maybe in complete poverty, but they're maybe on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. They don't have a whole bunch of extra money. Uh, there's a big list of things that they wish they could do, but they can't do it. And they find themselves living with an attitude of saying, you know, man, if I could just catch a break financially, 
if I could just get a second job and make a little bit of extra money, if I could just have these things, if I could just this or if I could just that, then I would be happy, then I would be content, then I could stop striving for more. And the question is, when will enough ever be enough? Because I think we all know that there will never be an end to the list of things that we say, well, if I could just have this, or if I could just have this, or if I could just have this, that list will never end. And so you take that person who's discontent with having little, and you give them all of the material possessions, what makes us think that they are magically going to learn to be content with much when they've not learned to be content with little? All of a sudden, they will continue to have that heart posture of, man, if I could just this, if I could just that, it'll just be for bigger, better, faster, more expensive things. So living with little is, in some ways, the training ground for how we learn to uh, live with much. Contentment can be had in any and every kind of circumstance. Enjoyment of material possessions is not the same thing as being content with those material possessions. And what Paul says here is that we can be content with having little and we can be content with having much, meaning we can have lots of nice things. And remember, the Bible doesn't ever say we should become impoverished people. The Bible doesn't say we need to, uh, you know, view material possessions always with a kind of suspicion. No, God has designed us to enjoy the material world that he's given us, and it's a good thing for us to do that. But we can be content and not have a kind of heart striving, a heart level sort of dissatisfaction with the material possessions we have when we have much. And so he tells us we can be content with little, we can be content with much, and the secret to finding contentment is the same in both cases. To be content with little and to be content with much is the exact same secret. He tells us, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It is the power that Christ provides that enables us to be content with having little or having much. Another way of putting it is that the secret to finding contentment is having a heart that's satisfied in Jesus. That's ultimately what it's about. When our hearts are satisfied with who Jesus is, that will protect us from the allure of having more. When our hearts are satisfied in Jesus, when we have seen who God is and what he's done for us, when we filter all of our experiences through what we know to be true about who God is, that he's a generous, loving father who delights to give us every good thing that we need. In Christ, he's provided us with the one thing that our hearts most desperately need, and that is forgiveness of our sins and being brought into restored relationship with God himself. When we see that in Christ, that's who he is and that's what he's provided for us, that gives us a kind of heart level satisfaction in Jesus that will protect us from the allure of having more. So the secret to finding contentment is having a heart that is satisfied in who Jesus is. So that's the first surprising reality of life in God's kingdom is that we can be content in any and every situation. And the second surprising reality is this. What looks like loss is actually gain. What looks like loss is actually gain. Remember, Paul wrote this letter to them to express in part his thankfulness for a financial gift that the Philippian church had given to him. And of course, this was not the first time that they gave him a financial gift. We read about this in verse 15 where he says, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church 
shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So Paul had a relationship, an ongoing relationship with the church in Philippi. And remember, this is before the age of like mass digital communication. So Paul is sometimes hundreds of miles away in a different part of the Roman Empire where the only way you could communicate was to send a person to walk there or write a letter and have a person walk to deliver that letter. There was no text messages, there was no email, and in this environment, their relationship was such that they always had this kind of connection together, and they always knew when, where Paul was and what Paul's needs were, and they delighted to provide for his needs by sending him a financial gift. And just notice that as he's talking about this financial gift with them, he wants to go out of his way to make sure that he's not misunderstood. So in verse 14, he says, it was good of you to share in my troubles, In other words, it was really good of you to give me that money. It was a good thing. (laughs) Of course, Paul can say that. It's a good thing that you gave me that money. Then he goes on to say in verse 17, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent. So he goes out of his way to say, I don't desire your gifts. What I desire is that something be credited to your account. In other words, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, ultimately, I don't want something from you. I want something for you. Yes, your financial gifts to me are good. Yes, those are helpful to me. Those are beneficial. And I benefit from those. Absolutely. But he's saying, ultimately, I don't just want something from you. I don't just want your money. What I want is for something to be credited to your account. There's so much commercial and financial language that's packed into verses 17 and 18 here. And this verse where he says, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. That's referring to someone who makes an investment and that investment accrues interest over time. And so he's saying to them, what I want is not just to get money from you, What I want is for the investment that you have made in me, the investment that you have made in the advance of God's kingdom through me, I want that to gain a kind of interest. And the question is, okay, in what possible way could that gain interest? Listen to the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter six. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your hearts will be also. I think this may be what is behind Paul's thinking with the accruing of interest here. See, what Jesus is saying is that there's two different ways you can live. You can live in such a way that you are accumulating earthly treasure, which is things that will degrade, things that will decay, things that can rot, things that can mold, things that can be stolen from you, all the stuff you have that will one day end up in a landfill, all of that is earthly treasure. So you can give your life to the accumulation of earthly kinds of treasure, or you can give yourself to the storing up of treasures with God. I think this is what is maybe in Paul's mind when he's writing this. This is This is the uh, accumulation of interest, I think, that Paul is referring to here. He says, I don't 
just want your money. I want for the financial investment that you've made in me to be storing up treasures with God. I want it to be gaining some sort of return on investment. And so this is, I think, where we see the surprising reality uh, of the fact that what looks like loss is actually gain. Because if you were to real-time monitor the bank accounts of the people in the church in Philippi who were giving money to Paul, you would see that the numbers are going down and down and down and down as they continue to give him more money. And yet what Paul says is that they are not poorer, but they are richer for having done it. Because there's an accumulation, there's some sort of return on investment. Something more is being added to their account every time they give money away. What looks like loss is actually gain. This is what we call kingdom math. There's lots of things about being members of God's kingdom, being a part of the family of God that are sort of upside down, inside out, maybe what feels backwards to us of the way that we've learned things uh, in the world. And this is a part of that kingdom math is that when you give money away, you end up with more wealth in the end. And maybe a better way of saying that is that when you give financial resources away, you end up with a different kind of wealth altogether. Something is being credited to your account when you give money away, so you're not just losing. What looks like loss on the outside is actually a gain because there's, only, there, there's a limitation of what earthly uh, money can purchase for us. There's limitations to what it can actually gain for us And the kinds of things that it can gain for us are not the kind of things that will last into eternity. They're not the kind of things that will bring us lasting, long-term joy and satisfaction. And so what Paul says is, yes, you may be losing those finances by sending those on to me and my gospel ministry, but you are gaining something far more valuable than the money that you were giving up in the first place. And this is what the kingdom math is all about We give money away and we end up ending up with a different kind of wealth, a better kind of wealth in the end. And this is the same principle that's true. It's at work every time we give as well. Every time we give financially to the work that God is doing, whether that's through uh, here at Elmwood or whether that's through a different ministry, whether that's through uh, supporting maybe missionaries uh, or something like this out of your personal finances, Whenever we do this, we are participating in this practice, in this principle of what looks like loss is actually gain. Because every time we write a check, every time we look at our bank account and see that the money has left, there's a kind of loss that's involved with that, a very real kind of loss. And if we're actually giving in biblical proportions and we're giving uh, based on how the Bible tells us we ought to give, that is, we're giving generously and sacrificially, when we give that way, There will be a list in our minds of here's the things that I could have purchased for myself but I chose not to so I could give money away. And there's a clear sense of loss with this. But what Paul tells us here, what the kingdom math would tell us is that when we give money away, somehow more is credited to our account. We are storing up a different kind of treasure. And I don't think this should surprise us, actually. I don't think that this principle of what looks like loss is actually gain, this shouldn't surprise us if we're people who uh, are, are gospel people. Because this is, in some ways, this, this is uh, sort of the inner workings or the inner logic of the gospel that we receive life through the death of Christ. 
Paul tells us about this in Philippians chapter two where he talks about Jesus emptying himself of his glory and taking on the humiliation and the shame of suffering and dying on a cross and it's through his unjust execution that we have been given new life in Christ. So we receive new life through the death of Christ and Jesus tells us we truly live by dying to ourselves. He says the way you live is to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to die daily, and when you do that, that is, that is what it looks like for you to actively walk out new life in Christ. We know that we gain Christ by letting go of everything else. Paul talked about this in Philippians chapter 3, where he gave sort of his list of uh, his spiritual resume, as it were, his sort of pedigree of all of the things that he'd accumulated that would look like advantages to him, that would look like benefits to him spiritually. Then what he says is, I gladly give all of those things up. I consider them as garbage. I consider them as loss so that I might gain Christ. And in fact, the way that we actually gain Christ is by letting go of all of those other things as a source of our identity and the source of our significance and our worth and our value before God. So we gain Christ by letting go of everything else. And lastly, we find our lives by losing them. Jesus tells us, if you want to find your life, you must lose it. And so this principle of what looks like loss is actually gain, this should not be even the slightest bit surprising to us when we have seen all the ways that in God's kingdom things don't always appear the way that we would think they would appear. And so this is, this is the principle at work here is that what looks like loss is actually gain. Now at the end of this passage here, Paul, after he talks about contentment and after he talks about this sort of aspect of finances and storing up this heavenly treasure or um, having more credited to our account, he ends by just pointing us to the character of God. He says in verse 19, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So the riches of God's glory overflow to us in the person of Jesus. And God will meet, Paul says, every single one of our needs. Now, it's interesting that what Paul doesn't do here is he doesn't have a list of caveats. You know, because uh, when we read this and we hear, okay, Jesus will, God will meet all of our needs in Christ Jesus. And we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. Does that mean that, like, we're never going to miss a meal? Does that mean we're never going to miss a rent check? Does that mean we're never going to be in financial hardship? What does that even mean that he will supply all of our needs in Christ? And Paul doesn't qualify it. Paul does not end with a statement of qualification. He ends with a statement of doxology where he says, my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so he ends here not with a list of caveats of, well, God will meet your needs caveat, caveat, caveat. He just ends with doxology and, and praising God for what God has done and his character and his nature. And so that's where I think it's appropriate for us to end uh, this study in the book of Philippians. And as we come to the communion table, it's a, I, I think that's, this is the posture that we can come with. We can come with the posture of seeing, for those of us who have maybe been a part of this series, remembering all of the, the riches and the treasures that have been in the book of Philippians, we come here to the communion table and we get to remember and celebrate uh, the nature and the character of God and we get to come here as a kind of doxology, as a kind of praise and worship of God. 
as we come to receive the communion elements, this is the clearest picture of God's meeting all of our needs in Christ Jesus. As we come forward to receive the broken body and shed blood of Christ, we remember and celebrate that in Jesus, God has dealt with the greatest needs that we actually have. He's already once and for all settled the question of whether he loves us. He's already once and for all provided for us the greatest, most important thing that we actually need. And so we get to come here today with a uh, posture of celebration and a posture of doxology like Paul does here. As we prepare to come to the communion table, I want to invite you to take uh, a few moments of silent confession and reflection. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed, by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, Lord, we pray that you would forgive what we have been. We pray that you would help us amend what we are. And we pray that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, amen.